Hi, my name is Emily Jeanette, and I teach because I believe in the power of influence. The role models I had in my life were teachers. They encouraged me, motivated me, and inspired me to want to become a teacher, and that's why I teach. I teach in a majority-minority high-poverty school where the stakes are really high, and the students that walk in my door each day have a challenge placed before them. I teach because I believe in the Ninas and the Tracys and the Shawns who have had many teachers before them that have taught them that they can't. So my job quickly becomes to teach them that they can. I teach because I believe in inspiring our youth to want to succeed. You see, many of the students I teach not only are at risk of failing, but they don't believe in themselves. And so each day my job, when I walk into my classroom, becomes evident that I am to inspire them, that I am to motivate them, but that I am to model for them, that I cherish the time we have, and I only expect them to give their best. I teach because I believe our most at-risk students need advocates. They need people to influence them to believe that they can succeed. I believe one of our world's greatest heroines was Helen Keller. She once said, if we do the best we can in life, we never know what miracle will be wrought in our life or in the life of another. Therefore, my challenge each day is to be that influence, is to create opportunities for my students to see those miracles occur, to believe in themselves, to know they can succeed. And that is why I teach. Welcome to another edition of the podcast. I'm your host, Brian. I'm a veteran teacher who has learned a lot over the years and created this podcast to try and motivate educators and very often try to motivate myself. I also wanted the series to present some possible strategies to help us improve in the classroom. The episode I chose for today is titled The Power of Influence, featuring a 2008 Georgia Teacher of the Year, Emily Jeanette. Now, despite having a long career in education myself and doing a podcast for educators, I've never been nominated nor selected as a Teacher of the Year at my school, much less the state. So when I get the chance to talk with one who has been selected, I'm really curious to see what works best for them. As you will see, Emily is a teacher who has a passion for making a difference in the lives of her students and fellow educators. On this program, Emily discusses her history about why she became a teacher and some strategies that have worked well for her classroom. Also, Emily offers some encouragement and insights to her fellow teachers who truly want to make a difference. And joining us is Georgia Teacher of the Year, Emily Jeanette. Emily, welcome to our program. So you were Teacher of the Year for Georgia in 2007, correct? Yes, the 2007-2008 school year. That is correct. Why did you become a teacher? What got your interest in education to start off with? I was in New York, and we were asked the question, all of the state teachers of the year, of why we teach. Why is it that we teach? And 
you know, I've really thought about that over the past year a lot in presenting and speaking to other teachers and community members. And I really do believe in the power of influence. And I believe that I became a teacher because I had role models in my life that influenced me to give back to society. And I had teachers and that really loved learning and showed a passion for what they did. And that influenced me to want to do the same thing for other people. With that great background in store, what was it like the first year? Well, I have to tell you that I I love Harry Wong's analogy of how you, at the beginning of, of your first year of teaching, you feel like you can conquer the world, and you're so excited in that energy and that passion. Yeah. <laughs> it quickly dies just for the nature of the job, but I had that passion. I had that excitement from the beginning, and I'll tell you that there were a lot of challenges that went along with that first year. I don't know if you've seen the movie Kindergarten Cop where Arnold Schwarzenegger is the the teacher and he's running out the school building and all the kids are hanging off of him. Well, I felt like Arnold Schwarzenegger my first year because I missed the last call for all buses and our school had over 14 bus routes. So (laughs) I had my kids running. I wasn't telling them to walk slowly down the hallway. I was telling them, run, get to the bus. So that's just one example of the procedures and routines that I thought were in place that weren't um, my first year of teaching. But um, I will tell you, I had a really rough year. What were some of the other challenges that you had? And just having the perspective of when something happens, whether it be from transitioning from one activity to the next or really being able to read your children and know them well and how to handle situations that may escalate with behavior That probably was the biggest challenge for me is just having the perspective of what to do and proactive preparing for that. I think when you're a first-year teacher, it's the one profession out there that we're handed keys and expected to function like a veteran. And I didn't have those prior experiences that would aid me in, in diffusing some of the situations that occurred. Were you in a situation in the first year of teaching where you were like, I don't know if I want to do this or this isn't Very what I want? Very much so. As a matter of fact, the school that I was at, we had, unfortunately, we had a couple of lockdown experiences just because there were some things going on in the area around our school. And I just didn't know the procedures of that routine. And, you know, that was a safety issue. And then on top of that, I was teaching third grade and given a class. I had 32 kids on my roll and 29 showed up the first day. Mm. So for six weeks, we were overcrowded and I had 29 third graders. And that's an example of management and being able to facilitate instruction to kids that were struggling. And and I teach in a majority minority high poverty school. Stakes are really high. And many of my kids that came into my classroom were either academically behind or just had a lot of emotional and social issues going on outside of school that made it very difficult for me to balance and deal with. So I will tell you that about six weeks into it, I got married on a Saturday and started my teacher orientation that following Monday. So it was a really hectic time for me. But after about six to eight weeks into the job, I was at a conference with some friends and said, gosh, there's something on my back. It really itches and could have sworn that it was ringworm. As a matter of fact, my parents were living in Europe at the time and called my mom, who is a nurse, and she said, well, you know, you need to go get some medicine to take care of that. Well, lo and behold, it was not ringworm. It was the shingles. Mm. (laughs) And I was told to her by the doctor that, you know, I needed to take some days off because stress is what causes shingles. And I'm thinking, I don't even have any leave built up. How could I take days off? And 
I tell you all of this because it was at that point I pretty much broke down and thought to myself, why am I doing this? <laughs> I was having yet another conversation with my mom and, and broke down pretty much and just said, you know, I don't think I can do this. And in lieu of the lockdowns and, and some of the other things that were going on, my mom had said, you know, I, I've never told you that I, I think you should quit at anything, but I will support you in this, but I have one question for you. And and I'm thinking, oh, what one question is going to keep me from staying with this? And she said, have you asked for help? And I quickly defended myself by saying, Mom, I know what to do. I've been through school. I can <laughs> handle this. I have three certifications in education, including special education. I should be able to do this. And she just said, well, if you can't help yourself, Emily, then you won't be able to help those children. Mm. And it really just sunk in and literally that was I think that was like a Friday night that I'd come home after a long week and that fall walked across the hall to one of my you know my colleagues and just basically said I need help and broke down and, and she gave me some chocolate which you know that's, that's always that always cures it at least Absolutely. momentarily <laughs> and we just began a conversation and she said why don't you look around my room ask me questions and I did and then from there, I was pretty bold and went in the principal's office and said, listen, you know, I really need help. I would love to observe some teachers in action. And by December, I felt much better. Now, I, I wish I could say that my class was magically turned around and they were great. We did receive another teacher, so my numbers dropped down to about 24 students, which made a world of a difference in itself. But I really learned that, for me, the key to really being effective is you do have to build relationships with kids. Your environment that you build for them has got to be safe and warm and welcoming. And with that comes having a plan, really making sure that things are in order and in place and that kids know those expectations from the minute they walk in the door. Because a lot of them, at least in the areas that I've taught, they do not have set routines at home. And so their lives are chaotic. And so when they come into an environment, they can quickly <laughs> tell whether or not a teacher knows what they're doing. And I really think we as human beings can assess whether or not somebody really cares about what they're doing. So I guess that was a life lesson for me. And, and I'd love to say that every year after that was easy. But I tell you that I what my mom said to me that night has stuck with me. And, and really in telling kids, you know, that, you can only get better and achieve something if you, one, believe in yourself and if you try. And there are going to be challenges there that are going to always be a challenge. But if you don't put forth your best effort, you'll never know what possibilities could come out of that. And believe it or not, seven- and eight-year-olds, they get it. Oh, <laughs> so, no. Or at least I've had success with them. And it's pretty amazing because when you hear someone being a teacher of the year, people can easily think, oh, they're in an upper-income school environment or they just right. had an easy first year. But you experienced a lot of the common things that first-year teachers struggle with. One of the things you mentioned was about relationship with students. What did you do to uh, form that relationship to where they weren't running all over you, but at the same time they respected you? You know, I talked about other teachers having an influence on me and – I don't remember much about my early years as a student. I wish I could, but one of my teachers, my first grade teacher, Miss Denny was her name. Every morning before we walked in the door, she greeted us and she would give us a hug. And she would say, you know, something to the effect of, good morning, Emily. I'm so glad that you're here today. We're going to have a great day and I hope that you'll work with me so I can do my job and you can do yours. 
And I remember there were times, you know, even as kids, I think we forget little kids. They're Like I said, they're human beings, and they wake up on the wrong side of the bed sometimes like we do. And so what that taught me as a child was, wow, this is somebody from the beginning, from the first moment I walk in the door that has basically committed to me that they're going to do their best to work with me. And so I've developed something very similar. I call it H and H with my kids and I say handshake or hug. And there's some kids that they're not huggers. They don't want to give you a hug or maybe they do, but they really have started off on foot in the morning. And, And I mean, kids that have things where they've been taken out of their home the night before. I mean, really some issues that the people that they trust, their circle of trust has been broken. And so Anyway, we have this H&H, and it's amazing that I can watch the transformation in some of my children that really would even struggle with giving me a handshake or looking me in the eye to, at the end of the year, you know, coming running down the hallway where I have to tell them to walk mm-hmm. <laughs> and giving me a hug and saying, I'd like to tell you all about my evening. <laughs> and I'd say, well, we, we're, we're going to have to talk about throughout the day, but are you ready to be here today? And, and even kids saying, say, I'm not excited about being at school today. It's, it's a formative assessment right off the bat for me. And I have to tell you, I'm one of those teachers that the janitor's telling me to leave at the end of the day, but I'm also speeding into the parking lot because I'm probably one of the last one to get there in the morning. And my kids know I'm not a morning person. So they're waiting there every morning for me. And, and that's how we start off our day. And that's one way to build relationships. And I really think that in this day and age with testing and accountability and knowing what I'm doing now and, and working with recruiting teachers and retaining them, I think it's really important that we look at teaching. And I was listening to this uh, leadership, some and leadership say that we set schools into looking like a business when schools really look more like a hospital and that we're practitioners and we're working with human beings and, and children, primarily students, that we want to be successful in the world we live in, not just successful in itself. And I think we've got to step back and realize the product that we're dealing with (laughs) isn't a formula that you can just, if you apply these strategies, it's going to work. There's so many emotional and social things that are going on that if we don't address first, we're never going to get them to succeed. So the relationship piece is very important to me and involving them in the process to where I'm looking at my curriculum and I've got lesson plans and units planned and a child or a student or students become very interested in a topic and we kind of deviate off of that topic, I'm taking a risk. I'm not staying on schedule, but I think the risk is well worth it when in the end I have children buying into learning because I've actively involved them in that process. I firmly believe in in building those relationships with kids. That somehow gets lost these days where we're like all about test scores and the students, Mm -hmm. as you say, are products and we forget to build uh, relationships and, and if you get to know kids, that can help you not only in just how you perform in the classroom, but also your classroom management. Closing the achievement gap. We hear it over and over and over again. And we've got several systems in place that are working to make that happen. But I think one area that, and I know here in the state of Georgia, we've got a system called School Keys. And one of the components is stakeholder engagement and involving the community. What can we do? Because we know that while the teacher is responsible, 
we can't be solely responsible for educating a child. And that means going everything from really looking at, you know, that early childhood development, parent involvement, educating parents to involving the local businesses in the process. But as I look at that, our number one stakeholders are our students. And I think we forget, especially with our middle school and high schoolers, that they can lend so much advice, I guess, Mm. from their perspective on what they need. And we've got to give them credit. And I think that it's kind of like the teaching profession. The more years experience you have or the more degrees you have, you must be better at what you do. And I think that's a cultural mindset maybe we have, even with kids. You know, well, the older you are, (laughs) the more wise you are and the better decisions you'll make. And I think there's definitely merit in that. I'm not saying by any means we need to trust 100% what kids say, but I think that we need to actively involve them in the process. And I think that's what we're missing, especially with the technological world we live in. I mean, kids today know so much more than the veteran teacher, even than myself, about technology, how entertainment is a part of their world. And with that changing, I think that we're missing out on listening to them. So I would definitely say that we've got involved in the process. And and I think, you know, with the teacher shortage today, what do they see in a teacher? If they became a teacher, why, why are they not becoming teachers? Why is it something, a career that they're not looking to? What can we do to make them want to become teachers? And, you know, I think sometimes maybe they, they're, they're smarter than we think and they see the challenges that teachers have and they think, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I know that's my husband has said that many of times. Fortunately, I had teachers that that influence, you know, really built the spark in me that said, wow, they're not only doing a job, but they're having fun doing it. We work harder when we enjoy what we're doing and we've got to apply that philosophy to our or that same motto if you will to our students. Emily one of the things that can keep that passion and enthusiasm going in the classroom is having good classroom management skills and we've talked so far about having a relationship with students and that can help with classroom management having passion for what you're teaching can help but what are some other strategies that can help in classroom management skills? I've thought about this a lot because Some people are naturally extremely organized. You know, you have those anal retentive, if you will, teachers. I don't want to say that that's the key to being successful because I think there are some people that are extremely creative and allow maybe some of their flexibility with being organized, if you will, having everything having a place, not having a place. They allow kids to explore more. I mean, I've seen that in my own teaching practices. But I I think the number one key to being an effective manager of students is that organization. You've got to have a plan that works for you. And what works for one teacher may not work for another, Mm -hmm. but we need to model those for one another, especially our novice teachers. You were talking about how can you, what do you do at the beginning of the year to let your kids know you care about them, but not that they'll run all over you. And I think that Like I said, setting those expectations up front. As a teacher, I know that every year, and things do change, you grow in the process. Like I said, you're a practitioner. You get better. You read more. You have more experiences that make whatever you have in place, your procedures in place, richer and, and, and better for the kids that you're teaching. Every year, I reflect on the past year, and I think about what is it 
that I want my students to know that I expect of them each and every day. And I think that's important in every aspect. What do I expect of them during reading time? What do I expect of them during math? What do I expect when we walk out of this room into the hallway and we go to another classroom? What do I expect from them when a visitor walks in? What do I expect from them when the substitute's here and I'm not? And you have to model all of those things. And so I guess what I'm getting at is we've got to be reflective. I, I truly believe in when you're planning curriculum, you have to think with the assessment in mind first. What is it that I want my kids to do? After teaching them all of this stuff, what is it that I want them to do? Because if I create all these great activities and then we get to the end and they can't do what I've asked them to do, then maybe those activities didn't really tie in with what I wanted them to do. And I think the same applies to discipline. So what do I want my classroom to look like? And that doesn't mean there aren't going to be bumps in the road. But if you figure it out along the way and there's holes there, that's when behaviors escalate. That's when students, as I said before, that aren't in safe environments, they're going to do whatever they think is necessary to protect them and feel safe. How did you approach difficult parents? What are some of the things that you learned that we can maybe pass on to other new teachers out there about how do, how do you deal with difficult parents or maybe even get them involved to start with? Well, you know, one of the things that I wish for the future is that I will be a parent myself at this point in time. And so I really do realize that that's difficult because I'm not in their shoes yet. But what I see is, one, regardless socioeconomically where the parent is, regardless of their likes and, and dislikes. They love their children. And I have seen that from everything from parents that are extremely involved in the process and those that are doing everything they can to provide food on the table for their kids. And so my number one goal at the beginning of the year is I want FaceTime with each of those parents. Those that are really involved, I have no problems. <laughs> those that are not, because those can be difficult too. I have set up times where I'm like, we can meet here, or let me come out to the ballpark, or let me come out to your job. I've met several parents that at the end of their shift, and we meet face-to-face -face and we have a conversation. While I know and recognize not all teachers are going to do that, that's something that has worked for me, because I think it's so important that I establish that contact and let that parent know that we are working together this year, that they are the teacher, and I tell them that from the beginning. I want you to know that I'm your child's teacher for nine months, but you are your child's teacher for life. And, you know, some of them kind of laugh and look at me like, we know that. <laughs> but what I then begin to say is I want you to realize that I take this job very seriously. The amount of time that it took you to carry your child is, was a short period of time in the span of their life, and that's all the time I have to work with you. So I consider myself to be that coach that's coaching you along the sidelines, that's giving you tools and opportunities to help your child succeed. And the only way that we can really see the success in your child is if we work together. So I want you to be a resource to me. And I can tell you I had one student in particular that not only the, the teachers in our schools have had difficulty with, but he was. He was a difficult kid. By second grade, I mean, his file was, just inundated with referrals and his mother had not had a 
wonderful experience. And every time she came to the school, it was. It was something bad because her son had not been either behaving or he had been in a fight or, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And she kind of almost put, if you will, a smoke screen up when she first met me. It was like, oh, well, here's another teacher that's going to tell me the same things. And and we had that conversation. And from the get-go, I let her know my expectations. But I talked to her about, I gave her kind of a a survey, if you will, and some of my kids that may struggle behaviorally that she could take home. And I wanted her to fill out from her perspective what she saw. And then I tried to incorporate that, some of the things that were going on at home that she could work with her son with, that I could work with at school. And we, you know, developed, if you will, a, a behavior plan for her son. And But with that, we had rewards. And a reward for him was for me to come to his games. He had two office referrals the entire school year, and I, I would try not to get emotional, but at the end of the year, his mom came in and just tears in her eyes, and they were moving, and she just said, this has been, wow, an extraordinary experience. She said, you know, Miss Jeanette, uh, my son was angry because his, he doesn't have a father in his life, and while I know that we'll still be something that I I'm, will continue to try to involve him in sports, you acted as that other role model, not just me, but he knew someone else, another adult cared for him. How am I going to have a teacher like you? And I just sat back and thought, wow, that may have only been one kid, but now we've provided opportunities for that child to see, even if that, you know, other unfortunate experiences occur in his lifetime, you always look back to the good stuff because that's what keeps you going. It's not about test scores, is it? <laughs> right, right. And not to mention, he was an extremely bright, bright child that had not been performing. And then at the end of the year, we were considering testing him for, you know, the gifted programs, that relational piece that's so key and important. And tell you what, I can't tell his name, but when I got Teacher of the Year, they interview your students. One of my students, you know, the question was posed, what is it that you like about Miss J? The young man that I spoke about earlier said, oh, well, she really cares about us even when we get in trouble. (laughs) And really, well, how? Well, she gives us hugs. And he stopped and he said, you know, she gives us hugs not because she has to, because she wants to, because she really loves us. It let me know that, wow, you know, that's important. It allowed me to see that wherever you are on the continuum of the child's academic career, letting them know that you care is what's most important. And I think it is easier when they're little because they haven't been as tainted, but that makes my job even more important that. I provide opportunities to, for them to build that self-esteem so when they do face challenges, whether it's pressure from their peers or just life in general, that they can think back to those times that, you know, there are people out there that care about me. I just have to seek them out. And hopefully we'll have more of those teachers, and I think we do in education, but we've got to support them so they can convey that to kids. What a phenomenal career you've had. It was not a smooth beginning at the start, and that's where I want to kind of end the program is – There's a lot of first-year new young teachers out there who are discouraged. What can you say to them as we wrap this program Mm -hmm. up to encourage them? Don't be afraid to ask. I am not nearly as experienced or seasoned as some of my colleagues, but the only way that I'm going to get better 
and that I can really add value to the organization I'm with is by asking questions. If I don't ask and I don't believe in my voice, then I'm not going to have the opportunity to impact as many kids as I've really set out to impact. And so my advice to teachers would be, don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to go to your administrators and say, this is what's going on in my classroom. I need help. I think it's important that you seek out help before you start to criticize Mm -hmm. because all too often it's so easy. I think what happens, there's a a transformation maybe of heart or of um, a perspective that we don't ask, and so then we become very cynical. And so I think it's important that, you know, these novice teachers ask. Don't be afraid to have their voice be heard, even if it's something you may not like to hear. And don't be afraid to change. Don't be afraid to say, you know what, I don't know what I'm doing. Because, like my mom said, if you can't help yourself, you're not going to be able to help others. And helping yourself may be, in the end, if you've asked for help, seeking out another environment that may be best for you. Maybe you're not in the idealistic environment. I have told many teachers, student teachers that have gone to universities and spoken with, ask your professors for release days. Don't just go to job fairs. Go to schools. Visit schools. Meet with principals. Take the opportunity to make sure that your philosophy is going to fit with the environment you're going to be placed in. Because that's another, like I said, about going from rural to urban or even your philosophy because no one silver bullet, no one way of teaching is the right way. And if you're in an environment where the teachers or the principal has a vision that doesn't really fit with what you know how to do, you're setting yourself up for failure. And maybe, this maybe, you need to just put yourself in another environment but don't be afraid to ask. I thanks for Emily Jeanette joining us on the program here. And you just hear the positive energy and the passion in her voice of how she feels about influencing others, the teachers, the students she's around. And I hope that describes many in my audience and it describes you in particular. Thank you so much and have a great rest of the week.